0: Daniel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and his king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, diviners to be brought and said to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom then all the king's wise men came in but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant so king belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale his nobles were baffled the queen hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and the enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted, and those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes." But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is what the inscription... This is the inscription that was written. Meany, Meany, Tekel, Parson. This is what these words mean. Meany, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel with clothed in purple a gold chain placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we have record of the things that you did and the stories that you have written in the lives of so many people throughout the generations. So God, I pray this morning as Tony comes up and he walks us through this passage, that you would give him wisdom and insight and just the ability to speak whatever it is that you have laid on his heart and help us understand why you gave us this passage. God, open up our hearts and minds just to be open to whatever it is you have to say to us today, to challenge us, to encourage us, whatever it is, God. We want to be recipients and just responsive to your words. Father, we love you. We thank you. We invite you here this morning to speak that into our lives. It's in your son's name. Amen.
1: Thanks, Kevin. Well, we are in a series, actually the fifth part of a series that we've been calling Living in Exile. And if you are just joining us, I know that might've seemed a little bit different than what we typically do here uh, at Grace. So, so we don't typically start by reading a full chapter together like we did uh, just then uh, in that moment. But what we've been doing in this series, just to kind of catch you up, is actually pretty straightforward. Uh, we are just working our way chapter by chapter through this incredible Old Testament book, uh, the book of Daniel. And so specifically, we've been looking at the first six chapters, of the book of Daniel. So each week, a new chapter. Uh, As you can tell, we read Daniel 5, which means that we are in part five of uh, this series. And so as we've been working through Daniel 1 to 6, those chapters together, uh, one of the things that we've also been doing is we have been coming back to visiting and revisiting this collective prayer that we have been looking at together. And here's the the prayer uh, you might remember. It is, Father in heaven, by your power and grace, help me to be resolved Uh, resolve to pray as a first response and not a last resort, resolve to love and obey you no matter the outcome, resolve to trust your sovereignty in times of uncertainty, resolve to walk humbly in an age of pride, and resolve to live with integrity in an age of compromise. And here's what we said about this prayer. We said that this prayer serves not just as the collective heartbeat of what we desire for those of us who follow Jesus here at our church. We said this also is an outline of the first six chapters of Daniel. And so we've been using each one of these statements as kind of a guide for us each week as we've been preaching uh, through the different chapters of the book of Daniel. And that's why I do wanna tell you that if you are a guest or you're just joining us and you missed any of the previous talks, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those. We've actually covered a whole lot uh, that is already on this screen. Uh, But today what we're gonna do as we continue in this, as we look at Daniel chapter five, is we wanna talk about this idea of being resolved to walk humbly in an age of pride. All right, so that's what we want to talk about today is what does it look like? What does it mean to walk humbly in an age of pride? One of the questions that we've been dealing with in this series is we've been saying, for those who follow Jesus, and I know, of course, that's not everyone who's here today. Some of you might still be investigating Jesus, but for those of us who follow Jesus, we've been saying, what does it look like to stand out and to make a difference in the culture in the society that we live in? And I think one of the most pronounced ways the followers of Jesus can stand out is by walking humbly, is by walking humbly in an age of pride. I believe that the chapter that we just read, Daniel chapter five, I know there was a lot of content in there, and if you were paying attention, there's some weird stuff that happens in there. You know, you have this writing on the wall that happens with this guy, Belshazzar. There's some names that are in there that you might not be familiar with. But as much as you see happening in Daniel chapter five, I think if you could summarize the main point, if you could summarize it, I think Daniel chapter five is all about pride and the need for humility. So what is Daniel 5 all about? I believe it's all about human pride and the need for humility. And I think you can probably see that this is a relevant conversation. Um, the, 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 the conversation of, of, of uh, pride and the need for humility is one that is relevant, I think, to every human being, no matter what point in history you're talking about. Right? It's always, always, always a relevant conversation. But I think, and I, I, don't, I don't think this is an exaggeration for me to say this, I think that maybe the need for a conversation about pride and the need for humility is maybe more relevant in the time and place that we find ourselves living in right now, maybe at least than any other time in living memory. Um, And what I mean by that, and I think we would all agree with this, is it's it's no secret or it's no surprise that we live currently in a culture and in a society that elevates self-importance and glorifies self maybe more than any other culture in living history. I thought it was interesting. I was reading a book recently. Uh, it's actually a New York Times bestseller by uh, the name of The Road to Character. Some of you guys maybe have heard of this by a guy named David Brooks. And in this book, he actually talks about the increase of self-importance that we've seen over the past several decades in our country. And uh, he actually talks about this, this shift that we've seen from what he calls a small me culture to what he calls a big me culture. So he goes on and he describes this. Here's what he says in his book. He says, I collected data to suggest that we have seen a broad shift from a culture of humility to a culture of what you might call the big me, from a culture that encouraged people to think humbly of themselves to a culture that encouraged people to see themselves as the center of the universe. And then he says it wasn't hard to find such data. And in chapter one of his book, he goes on to give a plethora of uh, data and different points that kind of uh, that support this. I'll just give you a few. Here's one thing he says, he says, for example, between 1948 and 1954, psychologists asked more than 10,000 adolescents whether they considered themselves to be a very important person. At that point, 12% said yes. The same question was revisited in 1989, so that was still a while ago, and this time it wasn't 12% who considered themselves very important, it was 80% of boys and it was 77% of girls. And that was in 89, so you can only imagine what has transpired over even the last few decades since then. Uh, This book was written in 2015. He goes on, he says this. He says, psychologists have this thing called the narcissism test. That sounds really interesting to me. I would like to take that, the narcissism test. It says they read people's statements, and they ask if the statements apply to them. So some of the questions that would be on the narcissism test would be questions like this, or statements would be statements like this. Um, I like to be the center of attention. And so you would mark if you agree or disagree. I like to show off if I get the chance. I like to look at my body. I'm an extraordinary person. Someone should write a biography about me, right? So these are, there's a whole bunch of these questions, but these are some of them. And here's what he said in his book. He said the median, the median narcissism score has risen 30% in just the last two decades, and so all he's saying is there's like this, this shift that has happened from a small me culture to a big me that where self was self-glorif- self-glorification and exaltation of the self. And I don't think uh, for any of us here that surprises us. That doesn't come as any surprise to us because all of us are all too familiar with the self-glorifying message that is mediated to us through all different forms of media and culture and movies and even kids' movies, right? And so we hear it in the messaging that we give to believe in yourself, to trust in yourself, to more than anything, to not accept limitations and to fulfill you know, whatever it is that you're going after. So we're not surprised by that. But because of those things, I think what we have seen is that things like self-love Things like self importance, things like self actualization, and things like self expression have been exalted as virtues in our society like never before. And we live in a time where we would view pursuing these things as a highly noble pursuit. Now, again, I'm not saying any of this to try to bemoan the culture that we live in. It's just the air that we breathe, it's just the time and place that we live in. And I think technology has only further fueled the individuality that we see. Like if you think about it, everything right now is customizable, everything is individualized, everything is, is catered to our very likes and needs with our phones and our technology and all those kinds of things. I mean, even in my lifetime, when I was a kid, if I wanted to watch a show that I really liked, I had to wait for it to come, you know, whenever that, the programming would be, and whatever was on the TV screen was what the whole family was gonna watch. You guys remember those days? They were terrible times. It was awful. It was a terrible way to live. And and again, all I'm saying is that we live in a hyper-individualistic, self-glorified culture. And again, I'm not saying that to bemoan the kind of culture that we live in. Uh, In fact, it's just kind of the air that we, we find ourselves breathing. But here's what we need to know. I think what we need to know is that with this glorification of self that we've seen, that what comes along with it, there's some good things that come along with it, But one of the dangers that comes with it, I believe, is that we are more susceptible and we are in more danger of being proud people. I think that we are more susceptible. There's a a further danger for pride. And here's why that's an issue. Because the Bible is going to say that pride is a deadly, serious thing. And the Bible's gonna say that pride is absolutely toxic to the human soul. Let's give you a couple examples of what the Bible says. The Bible says in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God stands in opposition to the proud. The Bible says this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Proverbs 11:2 2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Even Jesus himself, he said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be humbled exalted. And so the Bible is over and over again going to warn us about pride. It's going to talk about the dangers of pride, how toxic pride can be to the human soul. C.S. Lewis, I think he made a great observation on this. In his, uh, in his incredible book, uh, Mere Christianity, he said, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And you know, I think there's a lot of truth to what he's saying. If you think about this, pride really is genuinely at the root of so much of the sin that we see in our lives and in the world. I think uh, a lot of the ugly things that, you, that we see in the world, that when you turn on your news or when you open up your news feed or whatever it is, I think so many of the ugly things that you see in the world, if you really trace it back, is a species of pride in one way or the other. And you think about it, what's at the heart of racism? It's pride. Pride is, is driving that. What's at the heart of nationalism? What's at, the part of, what's at the heart of tribalism? It always goes back to pride. What is at the heart... Of, of, uh, of a demeaning and condemning way of interacting with another individual. It always roots back to this, this deep-seated pride. I think pride is at the heart of all many of the ugly things that we see in our own lives, uh, in your own marriage, maybe some of the ugly tensions that you see in your own family. I think if you really trace it back, in a lot of ways, it really goes back to Pride, I think pride's at the heart of a lot of the ugly stuff, quite honestly, let's just be honest, that we see in our own church, right, in our own life groups, in our own relationships with each other. I think if you trace it back, a lot of times it goes back to pride. Now, just to be clear, I think, I think it's probably fair to say this. When we say the word pride in our culture, it can mean a whole lot of different things. And I do think, I actually do think there are some good kinds of pride, at least the way that we use it. So when someone says that they're proud of their kids because they've accomplished something or because they've done something that they're very thankful or grateful for, I think that there's a good kind that we could talk about. However, in the Bible, biblical pride is always a very dangerous and toxic thing. And that is what I believe is being addressed in Daniel chapter five. I think Daniel chapter five is actually intended... To in many ways serve as a mirror to help us see pr- pride that is very, very difficult to see in the mirror. I think it's intended to show us that, and it's intended to show us the pathway to humility. So before I show you what that looks like, I do just want to say, um, I'll give you a little bit of background on Daniel 5 before we kind of jump into that a little bit. So let me just give you a little bit. So Daniel 5, uh, first and foremost, I just want you to notice that 22 years have passed since chapter 4. So commentators are going to say that between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5, there has been 22 years that have elapsed. So if you've been with us in this series, if you were here last week for Daniel 4, it has been 22 years since last week, all right? And so some of you have been part of Bible Camp, and you're like, yeah, that feels about right. Yeah, 22 years <laughs> about, about it. Which I, I do have to say, Kevin mentioned just a moment ago, Bible Camp was awesome, and I, I do just want to express such deep gratitude to all of you who served at Bible camp this week. I think it was incredible just to be able to do that together as a church. I, um, I had a blast. I got to be in the dunk tank back here. And I did just wanna say something about that real quick. There, there seems to be a good amount of pent-up frustration in our congregation. <laughs> and I just, I just wanted to mention that, all right? It was kind of there. But um, so anyway, 22 years uh, since Daniel chapter four. What you're gonna see when you get to Daniel chapter five is that Belshazzar is now the king of Babylon. And so we're introduced to this new king that we actually don't know a whole lot about. His name is Belshazzar. So uh, let me ask you, if you've been with us, in Daniel chapter one, two, three, and four, who's the king? Who's the king? Nebuchadnezzar, right? So he's been the king of Babylon. Suddenly gets to Daniel five, he's gone. We don't know what happened to him, but history tells us that he would have died and now Belshazzar would have been the one who was his successor. Here's something interesting. Commentators are gonna tell us that Belshazzar is probably, most likely, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson which is fascinating because in Daniel 5, if you were paying attention, it called him Nebuchadnezzar's son, Uh, but the term son could be used for anyone who is your successor. Most likely, he was probably Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. But here's what I want you to notice about Daniel chapter 5. If you were paying attention when we were reading that, did you notice that you're gonna see we're introduced to Belshazzar in Daniel 5 and almost as quickly as we are introduced to him. We're told about this weird thing that happens in his life and then he's gone. Like in one chapter, we're introduced to him, this thing happens, and then he's dead by the end of the chapter. It's like he is carted onto the stage of the Bible, and then as quickly as he's carted on, he is taken off the stage of the Bible. And it causes us to ask this question, why is this in here? Why is this chapter in the Bible? And can I tell you what I'm convinced of? Why I believe Daniel chapter five is here. I think Daniel chapter five only makes sense in light of Daniel chapter four. And I actually think Daniel chapter four and Daniel chapter five are intended to be taken together. And so if you were not with us last week, I think that even today's message would make even more sense if you were able to go back and listen to last week as well because these two, I think, are intended to go together. So here's what you're gonna see with Daniel four and Daniel five. In a lot of ways, they're super similar. They're very similar. You have two kings. One is Nebuchadnezzar, the other one is Belshazzar, They both are full of arrogance and pride, and they are very deeply flawed people. You're gonna see that in Daniel chapter four and Daniel chapter five. You're gonna see both of that. here's what's interesting. You have two different kings, very similar situations, and you actually even have the same point that is reiterated in both chapters. And what's that point? Well, if you look at verse 21, you're gonna see it. Daniel says to Belshazzar, the most high is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, and he sets over them anyone that he wishes. Now, again, if you were here last week for Daniel 4, you know the significance of these words. These words verbatim were repeated three times in chapter 4. Three times, this exact same phrase, the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and he sets over them over anyone he wishes was repeated three times and now it comes up again in Daniel chapter five. So what do you see here? Here's what you see. Same point, different king, which causes us to ask this question. What's the difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar? What's the difference? And here's what it is. Here's what I believe it is. Nebuchadnezzar is an arrogant, proud king who is full of himself, who humbles himself. Belshazzar is an arrogant, proud king who dies in his pride. And I think the reason this is in the Bible is not just to tell us about them. I think the reason this is in the Bible is because it's supposed to be a mirror and it's supposed to help us look into ourselves and ask the question, are we going to be like Nebuchadnezzar or are we going to be like Belshazzar? What are we going to do? And so in light of that, here's what I wanna do with the rest of the time that we have remaining, is I just wanna, I wanna simply do two things. I wanna do this. Number one, I wanna talk about five indications of pride. I said pride is really hard to see in the mirror. I think this chapter, Daniel 4 and 5, I think it's intended to be a mirror that helps us see it within us. And so I wanna talk about some indications of pride. And my hope is that in this time, I can maybe even ask you some questions and that you can prayerfully talk to God as I ask you these questions to see if maybe you can identify pride in yourself. Now, I'm just gonna tell you, it's some of it's not gonna be comfortable, but if you're willing to, to just prayerfully ask God, if there's if you see this inside of your heart, I think that this is what this is intended to help us do. The second thing I wanna do is I just, at the end, very quickly, I wanna talk about the pathway to pursue humility. How do you pursue humility when you see pride within? Okay, so that's what we're gonna do. So let me give you five indications of pride. They're all based right out of the chapter we just read. So here's, here's the first one. Indication number one is this. I think the beginning point of pride begins in a place that says, I stand over God. All right, so biblical pride, what is biblical pride? I think that part of it begins here. It begins with this place of saying, I stand over God. Now, what do I mean by that? What you guys notice at the very beginning of Daniel five, how it begins. We're introduced to Belshazzar and what is he doing? He's having a massive party. He's having a crazy party. In fact, look what the Bible says in verse one. It says that he had this, this banquet. There was a thousand of his guests that were there. The Bible tells us multiple times that they're drinking wine. So there's a lot of wine involved. And then his wives and his concubines are also involved in this party as well. So here, here's what I want you to see. Commentators are all gonna point out that the language that is used here in Daniel chapter five is intended to help us understand that this is the setting of sensuality and pleasure. This is a crazy party, A 1,000 guests, lots of wine. It's a 100 kegger kind of thing. And what you see is that he's got his concubines there with him. And so you don't need to use your imagination very much to imagine what happens when you get a 1,000 of the nobles together with a bunch of wine and a bunch of concubines. It's a crazy party. So as this is happening, this crazy party, the Bible says Belshazzar has this idea. And basically, he says, I want you to get the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines can drink from them. So basically they're partying and I don't know if at this point they're lit up or whatever it is, but Belshazzar says, you know what, this is a crazy party. Here's what we're gonna do. Go get those sacred objects that were taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. Bring them here so that we can party out of those. And so they bring them in, that's exactly what happens. It says they brought the gold goblets that were taken out of the temple of God in Jerusalem and they drank from them. Now, again, what's happening here? Well, I think it's pretty clear that what's happening here is that this is a blatant act of mockery and irreverence towards God. That's what's happening here. And all the commentators are gonna say that that's exactly what's happening. This is basically like Belshazzar giving God the finger. That's what's happening. This is Belshazzar basically spitting in the face of the God of Jerusalem. Now, let me just say this. I don't think it always shows up as blatantly or in such a brazen way as it does with Belshazzar, but I believe that in a lot of ways that is the beginning point of all pride. What is the beginning point of all pride? I think it comes in a a place where I say I stand over God. Pride always begins as an inwardly defiant or superior posture against God. You see that all the way from Genesis chapter three, the very first sin, that it begins here. And so what does pride do? Pride exalts oneself over God. And this can show up in so many different ways. And so let me just see if I can give you some questions to consider uh, to see if this is something that you see in your own heart. Maybe it doesn't show up as blatantly as you see with Belshazzar, but I think it shows up in other ways. So how about this one? Some questions to consider. First off, do you believe that you are the ultimate determiner of what is good for yourself? Do you believe that that's true? Do you believe that you are the one who is, is the most qualified to determine what is good or what is right or what's going to make you happy in your life? Do you believe that? Do you believe that, that you are the one more than anyone else who knows what is best for you? And I think, I think that in a culture of individuality, that's what we are told. We are told that you are the one who determines what's good for you, what's healthy for you, what's right for you, and don't let anyone else tell you that, but I think in the Bible what you're gonna see is that that is actually the beginning point of pride. It's radical autonomy against God. How about this one? Do you commonly resist any authority figure telling you what to do, including or especially God? Are you the kind of person that just bristles whenever any authority figure tries to tell you something and specifically if it's something that goes against what you desire, Do you notice that there's that inner rebellious spirit within you? How about this one? Do you find that you are quick to complain against, mock, or pass judgment on God? Do you find that you're quick to be mad at God, to say, I can't believe that God did this, or I can't believe that God didn't do that? Do you feel like God owes you? Like, God, I've done all this for you, and I've never done it, and and, and you should really, and I can't believe that you, And, and I think sometimes if you really look at that, that those feelings and that, 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 that anger that exists inside of you towards God maybe comes from a place because you, you view yourself in a spot where you stand over, you stand over God. Um, how about this one? Do you often think that the rules don't apply to you? Are, are you a person who sometimes just thinks, well, you know what? The rules don't really apply to, apply to me. I think you see this with Belshazzar. It shows up, pride shows up as an irreverence. Pride shows up in such a way that he says, I don't care about the holy objects. I wanna do whatever it is that I do. I think that one of the ways that pride shows up is it shows up in cutting corners. It shows up in believing that the rules don't always apply to me. Now, this is so different than humility. Humility, Biblical humility says, no, no, no. Humility says God stands over me. There is a creator and there is an authority that stands over me. And that is the beginning place. The beginning place of humility is found in seeing yourself in a proper relationship to God. I actually think you see this with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter four. You guys might remember, Nebuchadnezzar was full of pride. He was full of arrogance, but then he humbled himself. And what did he say when he humbled himself? Do you guys remember? This is a revisitation of last week. He said, then I praised the most high and I honored and I glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples on earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what is it that you have done? You see, after Nebuchadnezzar is humbled, what is the result? He recognizes his true position in relationship to God, and he humbles himself and comes underneath God. I think that part of humility is recognizing that we are so, so deeply dependent on God for everything. Timothy Keller, um, he's an author and pastor in New York City, wrote a phenomenal book that I would recommend to any of you. It's called called Counterfeit Gods. And in this book, he makes this point. He says, human beings have very little real power over their lives. 95% of what sets the course of their lives is completely outside of their control. This includes the century and place they were born in, who their parents and family are, their childhood environment, physical stature, genetically hardwired talents, and most of the circumstances that they find themselves in. He says, so much of our life, so much of our lives, we, we don't really have control over the circumstances. Then he says this, in short, all we are and have is given to us by God. We are not infinite creators, but we are finite dependent creatures. I think he's making a good point here. The beginning point of humility is recognizing our true relationship to God. That brings me to the second one. I think another, another indicator of pride that we see in this story is that pride manifests itself a lot of times in a lack of teachability, in a lack of teachability. I think you certainly see this in Belshazzar. So I don't know if you guys noticed this as you were reading, but Belshazzar sees this writing on the wall. This hand shows up. He's freaked out about it. So he calls Daniel. And Daniel comes in and Daniel says, I'll interpret it for you. I don't want any of your rewards, but I'll interpret it for you. And do you see what Daniel says to Belshazzar? Look at what he says. He says to him, your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Then, if you jump down to verse 20, he says, but when Nebuchadnezzar's heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and he was stripped of his glory. Then look what he says next. He says, he was driven away from the people and he was given the mind of an animal and he lived with the wild donkeys and he ate grass like an ox and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. If you were here last week, that is exactly what happened. And then he says, until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and he sets over them anyone he wishes. There's the main point again. He says, You're, he says listen, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, he says, this all happened to him. And then look what he says to him. He says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, you have not humbled yourself even though you knew this. You see what he's saying? He says, listen, Belshazzar, you had the same grace available to you that your father did. You had the same opportunity to humble yourself because you had the story. Your Listen, Nebuchadnezzar himself wrote it with his hand and he told you, this is what happened to me and yet you were unwilling to learn. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Again, I think one of the ways that pride shows itself up is it shows up in a lack of teachability and it manifests itself in a lot of ways. And so let me ask you a few questions on this one just to consider. So how about this one? Do you find that you typically have to learn things the hard way? Is that true for you? That typically speaking, you don't really learn from the mistake of others. It's hard for you to learn when you hear accounts of others. You pretty much just kind of have to figure it out on your own and learn the hard way. Do you find that to be a pattern in your life? Right? Do you find that no matter how many times people warn you and tell you if you keep going down that path, this is going to be the result, you just kinda have to go down that path and find out for yourself? Do you find that to be true? I think that it's possible that at the root of that could potentially be pride. It could be a lack of teachability. Um, how about this one? Do you find that you get impatient or irritated when someone tries to teach you something? I'll tell you this one was tough for me to write, because it's so true about me. I'll find myself, get you know, you you get irritated. Someone's trying to teach you something. You're like, yeah, I know, I know, stop, I got it. And you're like, you don't really get it. But you're like, let me try it. I don't need to read the instructions, that kind of thing. If that happened to you, I think that that might be a thing. How about this one? Do you believe that you are so unique that no one could ever understand or help you? Do you find that this is true, that, man, I just, listen, I, I know that maybe this is going to help other people, and I know that what, you know, this, this whole thing is good for others, but you, know, you don't understand me, okay? I am totally unique, and I'm completely different, and nobody really understands me, so nobody can really help me. And I think sometimes that's an indication of pride. Do you guys know um, that recovery programs, they actually have a term for this? I think it's an awesome term. You guys ever heard this before? They call it terminal uniqueness, Isn't that great? Terminal, unique. I am so unique. I am unique to the point of death. And that's the idea, right? It's no one can ever help me. I'm so different. I'm sure, you know, these things work for everyone else, but it would never work for me. I think sometimes that at the heart of that might be a lack of teachability. Uh, How about this one? Uh, This one right here. Have you been thinking about someone else this whole sermon? That's an important question to ask, right? Like, have you... Have you found that this whole time we're talking about pride, you're like, oh, yeah. It's like my sister-in-law. She's just like that. Yeah, I got I to send her this message. Yeah, she's got to hear this one. It's a good one. I'm just saying it's probably not a good sign. Like, probably not, right? If that's the hard to see in the mirror, hard to see in the mirror, right? Humility, on the other hand, is willing to listen. Humility is willing to learn. You know, I think one of the true indications of humility is humility recognizes that that Listen, we can learn from anybody. You can learn from anybody, whether they agree with you or disagree with you or whether they like you, whether they're smarter than you or not. So you can learn, from, you can learn something from everybody. Humility recognizes that. Humility, I believe, recognizes that even though I believe I'm right, there still is room for me to, to be wrong. I could be wrong. There's a possibility I'm wrong. I think humility shows those things. You know, I actually think you see this with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel 4. After he humbles himself, do you guys remember what he said? He wrote, and he said this in Daniel chapter four. He said, it is my pleasure to tell you about the time that God humbled me when God taught me a lesson. He writes with his own hand and he says, I am so glad to tell you about the time that God taught me a lesson. What do you see? Such a teachability, such a teachability with him. And this, this, by the way, this verse actually brings me to the next point, the next indication of pride. I think one indication of pride is there's an inability of admitting weakness or wrongdoing, whereas humility, there's an honesty about weakness and wrongdoing. You'd see this with Nebuchadnezzar, don't you? Nebuchadnezzar, at the beginning of chapter four, says, I, I, I am pleased to tell you about the time that I was humbled because I had done something wrong. I am pleased to tell you about the time that I was made weak. Nebuchadnezzar is not afraid to own that. Belshazzar, on the other hand, you're actually gonna see that throughout all of Daniel chapter five, never once does he say he was wrong. Never once does he humble himself. Even, after, even when the hand of God itself shows up and writes, mene mene tekel parsel, which means your days are numbered and you have been weighed and found wanting. Even then, he never says, I was wrong, I humble, never, not even then does he do it. Instead, he dies in his pride. And you guys, I think that's a real indication. A real indication of pride in our heart is that when there's an inability to admit that we're weak or that we're wrong. So some questions on this one. All right, a little quick. By the way, how are we doing? Are you guys doing okay so far? we doing okay. You ready for another, ready for another pallet of questions? Okay, here we go. All right, so, so here it is. Um, do you hate to rely on others or have to ask for help? Do you find that you just you just loathe? You don't mind helping people, but but when it comes to asking for it, it's really challenging. i would be honest for you, this one was really hard for me to write because that one is painfully true about me. And even as I wrote it, I started to search, my I realized, man, there's a lot of pride in there. I just, I don't like to admit I'm weak. I don't want to admit that I'm wrong. Um, how about, uh, do you, you guys ever see that funny meme? I'm sure you guys have seen it before, the famous funny meme, the three hardest things to say. Did you ever see it before? Three hardest things to say are number one, I was wrong; number two, I need help; and number three, um, Worcestershire. Worcestershire sauce. I still don't know how to say that. How do you say it? Turn turn to your neighbor and tell them how to say it. I don't know how to say it. A- Worcestershire. Wor- Worcestershire. Is it Worcestershire? I don't know. I always want to say, I always want to say Worcestershire, but that's not it. It's Worcestershire. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's hard to say. All right. So um, how about about this one? Do you find that you struggle a great deal with criticism? Um, Do you find that even when someone offers you constructive criticism, not even negative criticism or unhelpful, but like constructive criticism, do you find that that's hard to take? I think it's hard for everybody, but do you find that you internalize it? It's difficult. How about this next one? Uh, do you have a hard time taking a good-natured joke? Do you have a hard time taking a joke? And I, you know, and I mean a good-natured one. I mean, obviously there's times where jokes are out of place or inappropriate, but do you find that you're overly sensitive, that you sometimes find yourself quickly angered? Or I think sometimes what might be at the heart of that could honestly be this, this prideful thing inside of us. There's an inability to, to recognize our own weakness. Um, how about this one? When you are wrong, which by the way, we are all wrong at some times, are you quick to make excuses? Maybe for some of us, we don't have a problem of, of you know, admitting that we're imperfect in theory. But when it comes to specific situations, we have a really hard time owning our own failures. Do you find you make a lot of excuses? So for example, will you say things like this, well, yeah, I was wrong, that was wrong, I was totally wrong, but man, I was just, I was so tired. I was so tired that day, it was Bible camp week, and you, know, you don't understand, and uh, I, was, I was really off that day. Or can't you just say, I was wrong. I was just wrong, no excuse, I was just wrong. Or how about this one? When you are wrong, do you find that you're quick to shift the blame? Is it, is it oh, yeah, okay, I was, I was wrong, I know I was wrong, that wasn't the right thing, but, uh, but the reason I did it was because you did this. And so if we can talk about that right now, that would be helpful, right? And I think sometimes it shows up in, in those ways. And so I think, I think that humble people, on the other hand, they're honest about their weakness. They're honest about their wrongdoing. They, I think I think humility recognizes that there's areas of growth, that I, I'm, I'm a work in progress and there's areas of growth and I need God and I need other people. And there's no way that I can achieve that without the help of God and the help of others. How about this next one? Um, I think pride shows up in an inordinate focus on self, an inordinate focus on self. I think in a lot of ways that is probably at the very core of pride, is it is an inordinate focus on self. You see this with the kings in the book of Daniel. You see this with both Nebuchadnezzar and you see this with Belshazzar. Maybe the clearest way you see it is in uh, last week, in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar's little, remember his little I'm awesome speech, his hubris soliloquy? What did he say? He said this, he said, "'Is this not the great Babylon that I have built "'as the royal residence by my mighty power "'and for the glory of my majesty?' And what do you see? He said, man, you see Nebuchadnezzar is totally full of himself. He is quick to exalt himself. He is anxious and eager to make sure that he gets credit and that he is remembered and revered in a positive way. Right? That's what you see with Nebuchadnezzar. But after he is humbled, what do you see? He has an entirely different, he takes an entirely different tone when you see in Daniel chapter four, you see that. And I think, I think in a lot of ways that pride at its very heart is really this inordinate focus on self. Now here's the interesting thing about this one. This one is really tricky because this can manifest itself in a couple of different ways. Sometimes an inordinate focus on self can manifest itself in a self-exaltation like you see with Nebuchadnezzar in his I'm awesome speech. But sometimes this one can manifest itself in a self-deprecation. It is a depreciating, deflating view of yourself. And so whether it is self-exaltation or self-deflating of yourself, either way, what they both have in common is they are inordinately focused on self. They both have that. Uh, You guys have probably heard it said. I think this is a great way to say it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. And pride at its very heart is an inordinate focus on yourself. So maybe some questions to consider on this one might be this. Do you find that when you recount stories that you're typically the hero or that you're typically the victim? Um, You know, I actually think this is always a really helpful, uh, you should do this sometime. Next time you recount a story, pay attention to how you cast that story. What part do you play? Do you find some themes? Like, do you find that you're typically the hero so when you tell a story, are you like, oh man, let me tell you, I, I, I walked in the room and, and at work and no one knew what to do and everyone was confused, but then I walked in and I told them what they needed to do and everyone was like, oh, we, we, what would we have done without you? And I was like, I got it. And, you know, and I put my cape on and went to work. and Or do you find when you tell this story, you're like, well, no one in the family, you know, everyone in the family messed up and everyone made it a big, but then I came in and I saved the event. I saved the day. Or do you find that that's true? I think that that, that might be an indication of an um, inordinate focus on self. Or how about this one? When you recount stories, are you, are you always or most often the victim? You find a lot of times it's, it's well, I, I just came and, and this is what they did to me and I, I tried this, but then they did this to me and I just, does that happen? And I think that sometimes, I think sometimes at the root of those things, that that actually is an indicator that points back to an inordinate focus on self. What about this one? Do you find that you're often frustrated when other people get more credit than you? Do you, find that you're, do you find that you're intimidated when someone who is more attractive than you comes into the room, when someone who is funnier than you walks in the room, when someone who is more intelligent or perceptively more intelligent than you is, do you find that you struggle with that? Uh, how, about, how about this one? Do you find that you sometimes, that you sometimes are envious of the success of others or that you sometimes delight in the failure I think sometimes that might be an indicator of pride. How about this one? Do you find that you sometimes say degrading things about yourself to fish for compliments? Do you do that sometimes where you you say, you're like, oh man, that was terrible. And someone's like, no, that was really good. And you're like, no, it was terrible. Tell me more about how good it was. You know, and that like fish for, it. we we all do it, right, at some some way or another. Um, Are you inclined to dominate conversations? I think this is an important one too. Do you, pay attention to this. Do you find that when you're in conversations with other people that it tends to, that you monopolize most of the conversation? Do you find that you rarely ask questions of other people uh, because you maybe are not as interested in, in taking interest in the things that they say? Now, that one's a hard one to, to identify, but I would encourage you to pay attention to that as well. All right, I'll give you one more, I'll give you one more. I think one of the ways that pride shows, uh, shows itself is this. Pride uses others whereas humility serves others. I think pride uses others where humility serves others. You know, I think, I think what happens when there's pride in our heart is we usually are more interested in what others can do for me than we are in what we can do for other people, how we can use our gifts and our abilities to help serve other people. And so I think, I think some questions that we might ask on this one would include things like this. Do you find that you often view people through a self-serving lens? When you view other people, what is the filter in which you see them? Do you, do you see other people for what they can do for you or how they might advantage you? And again, this one can be hard to see. But for example, do you find that you only want to be with people that you think are fun, that this person is fun for me, or this person is, I like being with these people because they're intellectually stimulating. I prefer to be with them because of what I get out of it. Do you find that you, do you, how about this one? Do you find that you like to associate with people because there's some social advantage to that, that it is socially advantageous to do it? Or maybe because there, it advances a goal that you have or an agenda that you have. And so connecting with those, or how about this one? Do you find that there's people that you avoid because it disadvantages you socially? I think sometimes that can be hard to see, but I think at the heart of that, a lot of times is this: is pride, it's using others. How about this one? Do you find that you're easily irritated when others interrupt your schedule or throw off your routine? Um, I gotta say again, this one was really hard for me to write because this is so true of me. Uh, But uh, do you find that you have a goal, you have an agenda, you have a routine, and when someone comes to you and it's a person who has an issue or there's something that's happening in their life that throws you off, that your natural response is to be irritated or upset about that? I think that sometimes what that might reveal is that we, we view other people uh, in, a, in a way that maybe is because you know we, 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 we can miss people in kind of chasing after those tasks. That could be pride in our hearts. How about this one? Um, do you view your gifts and your abilities as something to advance your own aspirations and to serve, or as, as something to serve and love others? How do you view your gifts and the talents that God has given you? Do you view them as something to advance yourself or do you view those as something to help serve and love other people. I tell you, it's one of the things I love about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, he actually tells us in Daniel 4 that the reason that he writes about this account that happened to him is because he wants other people to prosper. He says, I hope that I can use the story that God has given me to help you prosper. I want you to be prosperous. I think that's a true sign of humility is humility shows up in these ways. Now, again, these are just five indications of pride and how it shows up in our life. We could give more. Um, but I don't necessarily know if we need to go deeper than that in the time that we have here today. But here's what I want you to see. Two different kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar. Same lesson, different responses. And I think that this is intended to be a mirror to help us look into our own hearts and ask, do we see pride inside of ourselves? And that leads me to the second thing, and very, very quickly is this. So five indications of pride, what is the pathway then to pursue humility. How do we truly and actually pursue humility? Now this is where it gets a little tricky because if I ended the sermon today, if I decided to end right now and I just said, okay guys, so we looked at the indications of pride, here's what pride looks like, and uh, here's what humility looks like, here's pride. Do you guys see pride in yourself? And my guess is all of us would say, yep, I can see that in myself. i said, okay, here's what humility looks like. Do you see that? We'd say, yep, that's what humility looks like. i said, okay, so here's the point of the sermon. The point of the sermon this week is stop being proud and go be humble. Now let's pray. If we did that, that would be a terrible ending to the sermon for two reasons. One is it would be very abrupt, but secondly, it, it would be very cruel because it would be impossible. If I just said, look at the pride in your heart, now just quit it. Just stop being proud and be humble. It wouldn't work. Why? Well, because we'd fail at it. All of us would fail at it. And even if you went home this week and you did really good, let's say you had an awesome week in humility and you came back next week and I said, hey, how did the humble thing go? And you're like, oh, dude, I was totally rocking it. I was completely humble this week. And I would say, that's great. You feel proud about that? You'd be like, yes. I'd be like, well, there we go again. And so you guys see how it works? Pride is so, it is so, it is so pervasive and humility is so evasive. And the moment that that we start feeling like we are becoming humble, we can take pride in our humility. So the question is, how do we do it? How do we truly be, because the Bible says this. The Bible says, humble yourself. So apparently we're supposed to humble ourselves, but how do you do that? How do we do that? And can I I tell you, I believe that the answer is, I believe that the pathway is actually right here in the passage. And what is, what is the pathway? It's, it's the main point. It's the main point. The most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar were in their pride until they acknowledged that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. The Bible says humble yourself, but that's not all it says. Do you know what it says? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And so what's the point? Here's the point. The way to become truly humble is not through, is not through comparison of others. You don't compare yourself to other people. Human comparison is the not, way, not the pathway to humility. Um, self-exertion is not the pathway to humility. You can't just like say, I'm gonna grunt my way, to, I'm just gonna be humble. It doesn't work that way. Where does true humility come from? True humility is a result of knowing your true standing before a mighty and a sovereign God. That's the only way to do it. Maybe I could put it to you this way. Let's say that I said to all of you in this room, I said, hey, you guys, we are all really small people. And so I want you, I want everyone in the room to just feel small this week. I want you to feel small. there's a couple ways you could try to do that, right? You could try to exert feelings of smallness inside of yourself. You could just go, I'm small, I'm small. Think small things like I'm small. You could try to do that. And my guess is, is it probably wouldn't be too successful. You could also compare yourself to other people in this room. And you could say, well, I'm smaller than that person, and I'm bigger than that person, but I'm smaller than that. You could do it that way. But, but you, want, you truly wanna feel small? Here's, it's actually really easy. Here's how you do it. You wanna feel small? Stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon. And the, you don't even have to try. The result is that you're gonna feel very, 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 very small. So you wanna be a truly humble person? It's not found in human comparison. You can't compare yourself to other people. You wanna be truly humble? It doesn't come through self-exertion. It doesn't come by looking horizontally at other people or inwardly at yourself. It comes from looking vertically at God. And it's only when you gaze at the Most High who is sovereign over all kingdoms and you see his majesty and his sovereignty and his grace that you truly become a humble person. Let me just tell you this too, that when you gaze at God and you gaze at his holiness, It can be a traumatizing experience because when you gaze at God and you see how holy he is and you see how powerful he is and you see how gracious he is, what you also see is you see yourself. And what you see in yourself is you see weakness. What you see in yourself is you see pride. What you see in yourself is an inability to live up to the standard that God has. But what you also see is you see Jesus and you see his grace and his love as an acceptance of you. And I think it's only in view of that that you can become a truly humble person. I'm gonna ask the band to come up. And as they settle in, I wanna wanna end our time by just giving you two extremely practical things to do. I wanna be as practical as I can. Two extremely practical things that you can do this week to pursue humility. You see pride in your heart? How do you take steps to pursue humility? I'm gonna give you two, two very practical things, and then we're done. Here's the first one because true humility is found by standing in a proper recognition of your place before God. I think that a very practical thing you can do is on a regular basis be exposed to God. I think on a regular basis is to be encountering and to be spending time with the most high. I think that's how you do it. So very practically speaking, here would be here would be what I would ask you to do. I think this is this is just super practical is what if you spent every day in the morning, you spent time in the word of God? One of the ways that we know who God is and we know his character is we know it through the Bible. And we talk about this a lot here at the Medina East Campus, but I think it's a really big game changer, and that's this. We talk about spending daily time with God. We, we put it this way. What if, you, what if you had your first cup of coffee in the morning with God? before you opened your newsfeed and you looked at all that was happening in the world, before you got on social media, and you, what, what if you spent some time and said, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to gaze upon the holiness of God. That's gonna be the first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna to get to know him and his character. I think over time, that makes a huge difference that leads to humility in the life of a person. I would encourage you to do that. Let me just say that if you're new to the Bible and the idea of getting in the Bible every day is a new thought to you, can I encourage you to take one of our Bibles that are under the chairs, take that home with you. And the first page of that Bible that's under the chair is is some instructions and how to start a daily habit of being in the Bible and some places to start. And I would encourage you to do that. That's the first one. Here's my second one for you. It's my second practical challenge. This one's a little harder, okay? And so I'm gonna have to triple dog dare some of you to do this. This is it. One of the greatest things that God has given us is he has given us each other he has given us biblical community. We are a community of people who are pursuing humility together. That's what we are. We recognize that there's pride in our hearts and we need God and we need each other. So my encouragement to you is this, is maybe invite somebody else into this process. Would you be willing to even take the message that we talked about today, you'll be able to access it online again here in a couple of days if you want to. And would you be willing to talk to someone maybe in your life group, someone who loves you, that you love them, that they love Jesus, maybe someone that you meet with for discipleship, maybe this, maybe your spouse. And would you be willing to ask them, do you see any of this in me? I'm just telling you, that takes a lot of hum- it takes a lot of humility and teachability to do that. To come to someone and say, I, I might have blind spots and pride is hard to see in the mirror. Do you see any of this in me? I would encourage you to do that. And can I just tell you something else? If someone comes to you and asks you that question, would you do me a really big favor if they do that? Would you be gentle? Would you be gentle? Because remember, we are all in process together, coming before the mighty sovereign God. Let's pray. Jesus, I wanna say thank you that even though you are sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and you give them to anyone that you wish, and even though you are the powerful and mighty God of the universe, that you have chosen to humble yourself for our sake. You have have not only asked us to be humble, but you've also showed us the way to humility through your son, Jesus Christ. So help us even in this moment as we worship and we sing, I praise that we would be gazing, not just at words on the screen and not just at other people around the room who are worshiping and singing, but help us to gaze at you to see you, because it's only when we see you for who you are that we can truly see who we are and stand in proper relationship to that. So God, help us. Help us to identify pride in our own hearts, not in the hearts of others, but in our own hearts. Help us to confess that, maybe even for some of us repent from that here in this room right now and look to you that you might humble us together. We ask these things in Jesus' name.